I added one more podcast to the giant podcast bin. Now you have plucked that podcast out and started listening. I took my microphone and found some human folk. Then I recorded all the noises while we spoke. My name is Adam Buxton. I'm a man. I want you to enjoy this. That's the plan. doing listeners adam buxton here rosie rosie that's not a good idea rosie rosie there's a cow (laughs) in the drive rosie rosie don't antagonize the cow the cow is much much bigger than you are yeah that's wise rosie is now hiding behind me the cow's got out of the field which happens quite a lot and is now stood uh, on the drive behind our house. Okay, Rosie, here's what you should do. What? Fly over there and incinerate all those cows in a horrific and totally unjustifiable way. Oh, right. Is this a Game of Thrones reference? Yes. Dogaris. Right, well, I'm going to just go gambling. You deal with the cows. Have a good gamble. Come on. Let's just walk past the cow... Don't antagonize the cow, Rosie. Hello, cow. We mean no harm. We're just doing a podcast intro. Wow, that was quite scary. I'm going to have to call a farmer. Dogaris! Nothing. Okay, let me tell you about podcast number 93, which features a rambly conversation with the French-British actor and singer Charlotte Gainsbourg. By the way, if you'd rather head straight to the conversation, just skip forward around six minutes. For those of you remaining, I won't call you remainers. I met Charlotte, currently aged 47, in December of last year, 2018, when she was in London playing some shows in support of her excellent fifth album, Rest. And in a secluded corner of a bar in the hotel where she was staying, we talked about Charlotte's ongoing struggle to be confident as a singer, her musical collaboration with Beck on her 2010 album IRM, and her enthusiasm for the music of Kanye West, which brought us onto the whole fun topic of separating the art from the artist. And during that uh, bit of conversation, Charlotte mentioned the fashion magazine boycott of photographer Terry Richardson, who I didn't realise at the time is currently facing multiple allegations of sexual assault. We also talked a bit about Charlotte's film work, which is probably what takes up most of her time. She's appeared in over 50 films since she made her acting debut aged just 13 in 1984. But we focused on her work with Lars von Trier, who directed Charlotte in the three films that make up his Depression Trilogy, so-called because it features characters dealing with depression in various ways. In 2009's Antichrist, a grieving couple played by Charlotte and Willem Dafoe retreat to a cabin in the woods where things go horrific and nutty. Willem Dafoe's nutties especially come in for some very harsh punishment. Uh, Although Charlotte's bits by no means escape unscathed, during its premiere in Cannes, there were several walkouts and at least four faintings. 
In 2011's Melancholia, Charlotte and Kirsten Dunst play two sisters, one of whom is preparing to marry just before a rogue planet collides with Earth. And in Nymphomaniac, released in 2013, Charlotte plays a woman experiencing a sexual awakening. And the film features several extremely explicit scenes, some of which feature Shia LaBeouf closely scrutinising Charlotte's Netherlands. But Charlotte has never shied away from work that some people find shocking, as you might expect, given that she is the daughter of English actor Jane Birkin and Serge Gainsbourg, one of the most celebrated yet controversial figures in French popular music, and indeed in good popular music. That's just a joke. French music is good. Among Serge Gainsbourg's many influential recordings is 1971's Histoire de Mélodie Nelson, which has left a clear imprint on the work of artists like David Holmes and Jarvis Cocker, as well as the French band Air, and indeed Beck. In the early 80s, when Charlotte was just nine, her parents' turbulent relationship ended, and her father spent his last decade behaving in ways that left many shocked and scandalised, especially by numerous drunken TV appearances, in which he seemed to delight in saying whatever would cause the most outrage. But outrage and provocation, albeit underpinned by jokes and wordplay that was lost on non-French speakers, was always one aspect of Serge Gainsbourg's work. Uh, I talked to Charlotte about 1969's Je t'aime, moi non plus, originally written for Gainsbourg's girlfriend Brigitte Bardot, though the final release, which features explicit lyrics and simulated sounds of female orgasm, was a duet between Gainsbourg and Jane Birkin before their relationship started in earnest. And Charlotte made her own musical debut on another controversial duet with her father in 1984 on the track Lemon Incest, a song that she still includes in her set, though the song's lyrics originally led some people to suspect the close relationship between Charlotte and her unconventional father was inappropriate or even abusive, though Charlotte has repeatedly stated that was never remotely the case. An album of songs featuring Charlotte and Serge entitled Charlotte Forever, was released in 1986, just five years before her father died of a heart attack. But I started my conversation with Charlotte uh, by talking about the hotel where she was staying, which seemed to me to be part snooty nightclub, part farty art gallery, and part Zoolander convention. I'll be back with a little bit more waffle at the end, but right now, here we go! Is this a hotel you've stayed at before? Just once. Is this the kind of hotel that you favour? No. I would describe this hotel, no disrespect. Yes, no. To you, anyone staying here or anyone involved with this hotel, (laughs) as swanky with a silent S. (laughs) 
They described my shower. They said if you go in the shower and you press that button, there's a screen that lightens up, and if the other person on the the other side in the other suite wants to see you, he just he or she just presses the button, and then the the screen reveals. Wow! <laughs> I didn't use it. <laughs> that I mean, that's useful though. I'm always in hotels thinking, if only there was some kind of screen that would reveal the person behind it when I press yep. the button. Well, they thought about it. And this kind of crazy art everywhere. It's all very dark. Yes. There's a lot of places like this in Los Angeles, and I think now they're all over really? the place. Sort of boutique hotels. Yeah, yeah, boutique hotels with a, a I would say, aggressively chic. Yes, yes, exactly. Uh, no, but when I come to London, I never know where to go. I used to stay at my grandmother's house in Old Church Street, and that was it. And that's the only part of London I, I'm ashamed to say, but that's the only part of London that I really knew. That and Kensington. And now I go from one hotel to another. Not really. It's not the same thing. Do you still like hotels? I love hotels. Yeah. But I've become very picky. So I have a few hotels that I love, but when you're touring, it's always sort of a surprise where you'll end up. Yeah, I'm sure. And on the tour bus is where I'm usually sleeping. Plus, you're the one that's got to pick up the tab at the end of the day, right? <laughs> exactly. It's not like, oh, the record company are so generous. <laughs> this nice hotel. Am I right in thinking you've got you've got a lot of British connections in your family? I do. Half my family is English. My mother's completely English. Where was she born? In London, and I was born in London. My elder sister was born in London. So usually it was really completely centered around London. Yeah, and when you're traveling around, you're, I mean, your your English is very good. So you were speaking English from an early age, presumably, were you? No, but I heard English spoken around me. But then I was. Very lazy, and I—I I guess I wanted to have a French personality, and uh, I had a very strong French accent until I was maybe eighteen, and then my uncle Andrew Birkin asked me if I wanted to be in his film, but the condition was to have a perfect British accent. So、oh, I, right. I needed to study with a voice coach and practice. That was for the Cement Garden. Yeah, and. Do you remember what the key tricks were to sounding British? Oof. No, but the sound was everything was very familiar. So it wasn't like a, learning a foreign language or pronouncing it in a very different way. It, it all seemed quite natural. But I do remember having a cork in my mouth and having to pronounce things with a cork and all sorts of exercises. A cork in your mouth. What、yeah. does that do? <laughs> Makes you sort of go more like that, and exactly, that's what British that's, people that was, are like. <laughs> yes, that was needed. <laughs> How would one perfect a French accent then? <laughs> what would be the trick the, there? Yeah, exactly. A lot of that kind of thing.、Um, you think in French, though, presumably, do?、Mm, it's weird because I've been living in New York for four years now, and. It's still tricky to be fluent in English. I mean, to really be able to say what I have in my mind. But at the same time, I do think in in English now. 
when I'm supposed to speak in English. I, I don't know if I dream in English, maybe not. French is my true language, it's, even though it's not my mother's language, but she was learning French when she got to Paris, and when I was born, she was still struggling with the French. So making an effort to sound as perfect as she could with a lot of mistakes, which was a lot of fun for us. But speaking English then would have meant that it was a sort of a secret language because my father didn't understand English. Ah, OK. Mm-hmm. The English was only when we went to London and saw our English side of the family. And did he ever conduct conversations in English, your pa? Yes, later on. He, did. he said that he learnt English just by watching films with no subtitles. But then he, he spoke English, of course, with a French accent, but more in the, the American trend. He always made fun of the posh accent. Uh-huh. <laughs> Is that real melody? Heavy's in my phone charger. What? What? I left it right there. What? Did you see it? What? Have you got it? Where's my charger gone? What? Where's my phone charger? The battery's about to die. It was on the table. Round and round in their heads go the chord progressions, the empty lyrics, and the impoverished fragments of tune. And boom goes the brain box at the start of every bar. At the start of every bar. Boom goes the brain box. Last night, you were playing at Coco, is that right? I was. Sorry, I didn't get to see you. I was doing a show in Brighton. Oh. Otherwise, I would have been there. Did you go well? Yeah. (laughs) I had a lot of technical problems. I didn't do it. I haven't done a show for a while, so it was very nerve-wracking and unpleasant for me. But I think the audience liked it. I think they like it when things go wrong. Yes, I I think they do, when it's not too lease, how do you say? Slick. Yeah. How was your show? Slick. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, it wasn't. No, it was good. It was good, but I'm I'm always nervous when I know people in the audience. And yesterday I knew a few people, so I was only focused on on them and what they could think. And and the night before it was L'Olympia in Paris, and it was the same thing. I knew my mother was there, so I was thinking about her the whole time. It is embarrassing when you know people, isn't it? Because it's mm. it's like you wouldn't go round to a friend's house and get up and start singing, would you? <laughs> no. Unless they, even if they asked, would you do that? Have you ever been in that situation? Yes, of people saying, go on, sing, yes. And I haven't done it. Yeah, no, quite right. Never. <laughs> it would be weird. I, I mean, I, I'm too self-conscious to to be able to do anything in front of people I know, in front of... Already it's been a big step for me to to do live shows. Now it's a real pleasure, which was not the case. In the fir- first two tours I did, it was really hard. It was a challenge, so I, I liked it in that sense, being challenged, 
challenged. But now I'm, I'm really looking forward to shows that, that I have to do. So it's a big, big change. What were the things that made it difficult for you? I had the impression that I needed to pretend that I was a singer, which I didn't believe I was, but I don't believe I'm an actor either. It's just this weird thing of having done it all my life, and even so early, when I was 12, I didn't... Then I didn't question myself. When I was so young, it was nothing. It was just a little thing that I, I happened to do, and it was fun. But then when it became more serious and more a real job and a way of earning my life, then it became a little too serious for me to accept that I knew how to do it, that I was uh, a professional. But now I'm just comfortable with the fact that I don't feel I'm a singer and I don't feel I'm a, an actor, and that's for me that's fine. So in the beginning, because I was... Beck was very sweet, I did this album with him and he... This was... Uh... Uh, oh, IRM, uh, yeah. in 2010. And then I did Coachella right from the start and massive people and it was uh, quite overwhelming but at the same time very exciting. It's just that I, I, did, I had no self-confidence, nothing. And then the second tour was a little easier. It was with Conan Moccasin. Oh, yeah, he's great. Uh, he's so sweet and, and it was with his band... And so it was much easier and much more friendly in a way. It was, he's always pretending himself that he doesn't know anything and doesn't... So it was, I was finding someone that I really could relate to. But this time it's my band, which makes a big difference because we grew all together. I mean, one by one, but I was, I was there with Sebastian, who did the music, and gradually... The producer. The producer, yeah. And then people came in and we formed a band. And, and so I felt more... My position was more legitimate this time. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the album Rest came out almost a year ago now, didn't it? Yes, exactly yeah. a year ago, yeah. in November, yeah. Right. And that's the one you're touring at the moment? Yes, that's the one. Well, presumably you're playing lots of other bits and pieces. I've Not a lot, but it's, it's basically the whole album and I added a few songs of my father's I mean what my father wrote for me and which then, ones of those are you doing I'm doing Lemon Incest mm. which was my first song ever right and then Charlotte Forever but they're both uh, duos with him mm -hmm. so for a long time I thought I would never be able to revisit these songs and I, I only sang them once in a studio it lasted, I don't know, 20 minutes and it was over. So to be able to spend some time with them is a real surprise and it's very, um, very intimate because I can hear his voice in my mind. It, he's very present. Mm. So I, I'm, it's a special time for me, yeah, yeah. Those, those songs. And then what else? I do a cover of Kanye West and... Oh yeah, which one? Uh, Runaway. Okay. And I love doing that song. And then uh, there's an EP coming out, so I three of the songs that were supposed to be on the album Rest were leftovers. I wanted the album to be short, and it made sense to keep them out, but some of them were... Um, I was very, very attached to, so I'm happy to finally have them come out. Mm. Mm. 
How do you get round the problem, the, the duet problem then with those songs that you did with your pa? At the beginning, I was wondering if I... I didn't want his voice, but I, I was wondering if I should be silent or if one of the guys from the band, if he, someone should speak his words. And finally, I just did both. Okay. And it's not that I'm trying to have a low voice and then a high-pitched voice, but it just, it's natural, I hope. It seems very natural while I'm doing it, so I'm not questioning it anymore. Mm. Sort of obvious. Yeah, yeah. And is there an element of sort of provocation when you're doing Lemon Incest particularly? Because that, that caused such a stir at the time. It did, but not really. For me, it's, it's really going back to my first experience. And one of the songs that touches me the most, it's still very emotional, but because I was so uh, innocent. It's a very innocent song. Even with his words... He says that the love that we'll never do together... He's very specific on the fact that, of course, he's he knows very well what he's doing by provoking and saying lemon incest, but he was very specific with me, very precise, and so I, I was never, never shocked. And when the song came out, I was in a boarding school, so I didn't even know that it was that it had been a problem, that it was uh, sort of a scandal at the time. I was very well protected. And thank God I was, because then it was... People did ask afterwards, but it it didn't matter at all. And uh, I was never nervous about the subject or, you know, there was nothing um, awkward for me, mm. never. But you understood... Did you ever talk yeah, to him later on about... Because your dad must have known that he was obviously prodding at taboos oh, sure. and he was encouraging people's imaginations to just run riot. Sure, but that's what he did. Yeah. He was a provocateur and that's the way he wanted to work. But I can understand this of being uh, extremely shy, extremely um, self-conscious and, and that was his way of uh, dealing with people. Uh, the provocation and and he was very I think you you sort of need people like that did you think of him as shy and self-conscious oh yeah oh really very very much he was really he had a double personality when you knew him at home he was uh, very subtle very uh, you know not at all show off and Mm -hmm. but the show-off part was completely him too. But I understood that very well, and that's who he was. And I was quite... Uh, even though sometimes it was embarrassing... The drinking was embarrassing, but apart from that, he's the person I admired the most already as a child. Did you ever talk to him about the drinking and stuff like that? Oh, all the time. Oh, really? I was like a, yeah. I was like a policeman yeah. trying to take bottles away. and No, it was a... A big uh, struggle, but it was his struggle at the fir- in the first place. Yeah, yeah. That's a hard job for yeah. a daughter. Yeah, yeah, it was. It was. Um, so back to the album, you've got some stellar... You've got some stellar contributions on there, Charlotte, <laughs> uh, from the likes. Well, you've got Manuel from Daft Punk. Yes. Owen Pallett, you mentioned Conan Moccasin. Paul McCartney, 
who did it, he wrote Songbird in a Cage? Or I, did he collaborate with you on that song? No, no, he wrote it. But I don't know where it came from because I, I never asked because I'm not friends Oh, OK, I was going to ask how no, he came no. to be involved. I met him in London, but it was nearly eight years ago now. Was that through Nigel Godrich? No, it was through my record company. Oh, OK. And at the end of the time we had, I, I, I did ask if he if he would consider working with me in any kind of way but I, I didn't really know if he would respond to, to that and he did but I just received the song and a demo of him I could recognize his voice so it was so surprising and I was very flattered and so happy to to have this it was like having a treasure mm. but then I didn't do anything with it because I wasn't already working on a, an album so I waited for ages and then when we recorded it with Sebastian and with his take on the song because it was transformed a little bit we sent it to Paul McCartney to see if he still liked it and he did, and he came and recorded some some instruments with us. So it was a, a wonderful, wonderful experience, but I can't say more because I was just so amazed that he would come and then, you know, I couldn't really... It was a bit like pretending that it was normal. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was very eager to ask uh, many, many questions. And so what would you have time, asked him? Well, things about the song specifically, where it came from, where, you know, is it is it an old song that he found again, that uh, he came across, or is it something he thought of once we saw each other? You know, precise things. Were you a Beatles fan when you were growing up? Very much. But I wish I had um, been brought up with the specific albums, because for me... It was really when the blue and red album were released mm. and the white. So all that order of uh, songs, for me, that's the order. That's the the authentic order yeah. and not, you know, not the original albums. But yeah. yes, I'm a big, big fan. And Bob Dylan, presumably, you liked. I mean, you were in Todd Haynes' film about I was. Dylan. I'm Not There, is it called? Yeah. yeah, I'm Not There. And you were playing a sort of... It's all versions of... Dylan-like figures, yes, right? Yes, exactly. It's five, if I remember correctly, five visions of a Dylan persona. Yeah, and um, you were And playing, I play yeah. his wife. But the song I did, the cover of Dylan, that came later. I mean, the film was finished and Todd asked me if, if I would do a cover. Which one did you do? I did uh, Just Like a Woman. Oh, yeah. I, I think I like taking men's songs you know because Runaway is really a, a male song mm -hmm. just like a woman too and I did uh, Hey Joe oh yeah and that too is um, very much uh, a man's speech I don't know why it's a it's just by accident but it, it sort of reveals something <laughs> yeah it's fun playing a role I like it when men cover <laughs> songs that were sung from a woman's point of view yeah and they don't change the gender pronouns yes, yes. you know yeah but my father used to do this with my when he wrote songs for my mother mm. they were always from his point of view so she always sang uh, and that i think that's 
she has a lot of um, female admirers because uh, yes, it speaks to women. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Man, I remember when I was at school, and I must have been about eleven. And we we used to listen to a lot of music. We I listened to the charts all the time. They were so important. I knew exactly what was in the charts, what number it was. I knew every single song. I liked pretty much all of them. It was a real shock when, gradually over the years, like stuff started creeping in. I was like, I don't like this. Why is this in the charts? But there was a there was a sweet spot for about two years where everything was just golden as far as I was concerned. I think it was more or less eighty one, eighty two, or something like that in the UK. Oh yeah. But it was around the same time that I heard Je T'aime for the first time. Really? And, and someone, 81? Yeah. So when when was that recorded in the sixties? Uh, no, in the sixties, the version with Brigitte Bardot was oh, okay. done. Okay, that's right. I forgot she did it but, first. Yes, but she she was opposed to the release of. Of that song because it was too saucy. Because she was getting married. Okay, fair enough. And <laughs> this was uh, not the right timing. And then my mother agreed to do it, and that came out, I guess, seventy-four, uh, maybe. Okay. Seventy-three, seventy-four. Right. I think. So, yeah, I was only just suddenly aware of these things that my parents had. Yeah screened out of my life you know it was possible to do that in those days no internet <laughs> so you just weren't aware of a load of things I wasn't even aware of the sex pistols or anything like that you know mm. even though I was growing up at exactly the same time in the UK occasionally you'd sort of see them on the news or whatever but my parents would flick over <laughs> but yeah je t'aime and I, I it sort of blew my mind because I just thought how is it allowed she's making those sexy sex sounds And it was sort of passed around like uh, contraband, you know. <laughs> We heard, listen to this, this is real. It's like, it's not real, it can't be real. But, yeah, was... I think he was so proud that it was yeah. <laughs> uh, going around in the black market. Right, okay. <laughs> <laughs> And banished by the Pope, yeah. That's right. Mm -hmm. What did the Pope say about it? He just said... Oh, I, I don't know, I just know it yeah, was banished. He didn't but... like it. <laughs> he wasn't playing it at the Vatican discos. <laughs> Um, what sort of stuff are you listening to at the moment? Uh, a lot of Kanye West. Oh, yeah. A okay. lot. I'm still into Yi, Yi, Ye? The, yeah. Uh, yeah, I love it. Yeah, Yi, yeah. Yi or Ye, I don't know. <laughs> Does the real-life personality of an artist ever get in the way of your <laughs> appreciation of their work? <laughs> that's the big question. That's, that's the question these days, isn't yeah. it? Everyone's like, oh, I don't know what to think about this. <laughs> Everyone was well, fine with it for years, and now it's yeah. suddenly, hmm. I'm not in the social media, so I, I don't know if it's a positive point, but I just, that's the way it is. So I'm not aware of everything, and not as quickly as everyone else. So, of course, I've heard declarations that Kanye West did, which were appalling, but I don't know if, if it's a provocation or if it's heavier than that. I don't know. But anyway, I don't feel that I shouldn't listen to him anymore because of that. And I, I love his work so much and I feel that it, he's um, still so original and so new that it's... Um, no, I don't want to condemn him just because, um, I don't know, because he's saying, well, horrible stuff, yes. But I don't know enough also to really have a, a real, um, an IV, have a real a passionate statement conviction. or, yeah, conviction. Mm. But I was a bit shocked 
you know, I did uh, the cover of Vogue recently, a uh, French Vogue with my mother and my little sister, and I wanted to use a picture of um, of Matt Dillon taken by uh, Terry Richardson. Mm-hmm. And uh, I couldn't. It was an old picture from the the 80s, and I couldn't because he's uh, banned. Terry Richardson? Mm Mm-hmm. What's he been doing? Awful stuff, maybe. But, I mean, he's not... There's no judgment. I don't don't think he's he's gone through a trial or anything like that. It's just with the social media, he's... um, he should be banned and we shouldn't use any pictures of him or, or, you know, other artists. He's not the only one. But I find it very hard to just erase someone. So I don't know. Maybe he has done terrible stuff, but I, I still believe in justice and trials and, you know, real things. For me to have just the social media is not, it's not enough. Also, from your perspective, your father was someone who could easily be portrayed as monstrous in all sorts of ways. He would have been condemned straight away, yeah. Hmm. And so what of his music? Then people would have not listened to him. He would have been banned from radios. And I don't know, it's it's tricky because I don't want to... Of course, for the victims, I don't want to minimise that... But it's just before you get to that judgment, it's uh, it's too quick. We're just um, doing things in a haste. Mm-hmm. Mm. Strange as well that clearly there's some sort of uh, cut-off point because there's all sorts of historical figures that we're not wringing our hands over who did terrible so things. So many. I mean, in the museums, we should uh, take half of the art out. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they do that... With political figures, I guess, they take down statues and things like that. But with um, artists, they're slower, I suppose. But, you know, even people like, I mean, the Marquis de Sade, we could probably imagine that oh, he yes. had at least some problems. But then Céline, with his anti-Semitic visions, and he was appalling. Mm. He, but that doesn't mean that he's less of a genius. And I, I really don't believe in burning books and, I don't know. But it's it's a tricky subject. It is. Mm. Um, do you? You're a mother. Yeah. You have three children. Yes. Um, I have three children as well. Uh-huh. And How old? Mine. I have a daughter who's ten, and two boys, fourteen and sixteen. Yours are a little older, I think. My boy is twenty-one. Right. And I have a sixteen-year-old girl and a seven-year-old girl. Oh man. Yeah. So how do you enjoy being a parent? It's easy, isn't it? <laughs> so Everyone easy. should do it. <laughs> No, but also there are such big gaps between the three that it's really like having three different generations. But for me, it's my whole life. I changed when my boy was born. I I went from someone who was quite morbid. I had lost my father when I was 19. I was very dark. And Yvonne, my, the father of my children said that I changed. It was a a real turning point, thank God. Uh, So, yes, it made me who I am today. But I've never sacrificed any job 
in order to be at home. I've always managed to take my children with me, so I feel very privileged to have been able to do that. But at the same time, it means now that I'm touring, I'm leaving ev everyone back home for, you know, a period of time, and it's, it's not that obvious for them. It can be tricky. And does the experience of being a parent make you think of your parents differently? Very much. Yes, because especially with, uh, I mean, with every aspect of life, but regarding my work, when I realized that they let me start, I started when I was 12, so he, my father made me sing with him. But that same year, my mother thought that it would be a good idea if I had my own world, in a, in a sense, going to, to cinema and to, to have my own projects. And so she suggested for me to do a, a casting for a film, and I, I got the part. And that meant that that same year I did a film and, and a song. And being 12 in a foreign country with a film crew, it was so exciting. It was a new life. Which film was that? Uh, it was called Parole et Musique. I have a small part. Mm -hmm. But it, I was so young when I see my... When I saw my daughter, my 16-year-old daughter, at 12, and I thought, so I was out in the, in the wild at that age. I'm very thankful to my parents to have given me that freedom because maybe it's a time where they were, I don't know, less uh, nervous uh, and because I would, I would be very, very nervous. But uh, thank God I started that young because then I never had to ask myself if that was really what I wanted to do. I mean, it was more obvious than that. But so anyway, thinking about my parents, they've both in a very, very different way. I've had uh, real models of uh, education, I don't know, but a way of thinking, for sure. Do you feel you're more protective of your children, more nervous with them than your parents would have been with you? Yes, but that was as a result of them being very hassled when they split up. It, at first, we used to do magazine photos on Sundays, you know, of a happy family, uh, the, the four of us. And then when they separated, the paparazzis were there and it was... The, How old would you have been? I was nine. Oh, man, that's hard. It was really hard. And it was the, that was the other side of that public life. It was very stressful, very... Uh, I saw my parents really miserable. My father was miserable because he was on his own. But my mother was uh, in such a bad... Uh, it was such a bad time to have to protect her children and see how wounded my father was and having her own story. I mean, it was very complicated. So after that, I thought, you know, you have to be completely private, never talk about your children, never talk about your boyfriend. But then after I've been with Yvonne for 27 years, now I feel so stupid. Just, you know, it's... I don't need to be private. I don't need to protect this, uh, our relationship, it's fine. And when I did this album, Rest, I started thinking about videos and I wanted to shoot them myself. So 
I had stories that came up, and very soon I realized that I wanted to film my own children. And I thought, is it a problem to put them out there? And then I did think about my parents and the fact that they always welcomed us in their work, especially my father, because he was directing videos, he was uh, doing his music. Even I remember when people asked him for an autograph when I hadn't done anything, he would always make me sign too. It was just normal to to participate with the people he loved. So I thought, well, maybe I have the right to do the same thing with my own children. And it's a, it's really an act of love and just because I they are the ones that I want to film, of course. And I thought for them, it's if they want to do it, I think they were old enough to say no if they if they didn't think they would enjoy themselves. So my son was so, so sweet because it was the first video I was doing and he saw that I was nervous and he was so, he wanted to please me and he wanted to, to do everything right. It was only a video, so it wasn't a big deal, but for us it was. It was a, and it was very charming to have that first experience with him and then my two daughters. Are they on social media? You know, I don't know. I think they are. My son, maybe, yes, but I, I don't really know. Is it uh, one of your children at the end of the last track on Rest? Yes. She was, uh, she was only three. She's quite embarrassed today. She's seven and she knows her alphabet. <laughs> Les Oxalis? No, Les Oxalis, that's the last song. But she's, we, it's sort of a hidden track, so right, yeah. it's called Joe's ABC, but... It's not Les Oxenis. Ah, okay, yes, yes, it's the hidden track. Mm -hmm. And yes, it's Joe singing the the alphabet song. Yes. Um, (laughs) And then it's suddenly, it's a lovely bit of just kind of naturalistic recording in your house or wherever, and then suddenly uh, the, the full band comes in or the music comes in. It was a present. In fact, my daughter came in the studio while we were recording with Sebastian and she went behind the mic and I didn't even really... I didn't know that he was recording her. And so he took it back with him and then made this orchestra the way he he does and sent it to me, but it was a joke. Okay. And I never thought really that it would end up on the album, but it suddenly made sense, you know, to to finish with such a light, innocent um, note. I I was very attached to it in the end. It really works, Mm. because the danger, obviously, with stuff with your children is that people feel that you're smug about how cute they are or something, and they just want to punch you. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But I don't think that's not in that category. I I don't think so, but I don't really care. But I thought it was very funny. So that's why it's there. Yeah. It's great, the album. I really love it. Thank you. I loved IRM as well, mm. with Beck. That, that was, am I right in saying that that was quite a lot of a collaboration with Beck? Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the whole thing was done with him. Yeah, okay. So it wasn't uh, you sort of taking turns No, on. no, no. I went to meet him to see if... Uh, of course, I wanted to work with him, and he said, let's try. So we, we started just doing three tracks and they worked out really well so we said let's you know let's continue and it it went on for 
maybe a year. It was quite long, but each time it was wonderful because I was able to go to Los Angeles, work with him in his own studio. It was very family-like, you know, at, at his home and very... It was a lovely relationship. Did you know him already? I met him through Nigel Godrich. Ah, yes. So you worked with Nigel. I know Nigel. Yeah? Yeah, he's an old friend. Oh. I haven't seen him so much recently, but... Uh, I haven't either. But it's thanks to him and Air, uh, Nicolas yeah, yeah. and Jean-Benoit, that I did a record with them all together. So that was in 20, 2006? 555? Yes, yeah. exactly. And it was... 20 years after the previous album that I had done with my only album that I had done with my father. So it, it was a big step for me to go back in the studio and... and uh, Charlotte forever. Yeah. Yeah. To, to imagine that I could still do some music. Did they find you and convince you? Because I know that Nigel was obsessed with uh, Histoire de Melody Nelson. Yes. As but, were a lot of those LA musicians. Yeah, that was but, a big album for them. And I think for Air, my father's music was a... Uh, still is a big deal and, and it's part of their their inspiration. So they were very open about their admiration for my father, but hopefully that's not why they came to see me. Mm -hmm. uh, but we met at a... Radiohead concert out of the blue I mean I, nothing was planned but then they said ah oh, we just talked about you and we should try and do something so that's how it started mm. I loved Air I loved their music and uh, and I could uh, I was hoping to project myself in their atmosphere you know in their world so Thanks to Nigel, I happened to be in Los Angeles and he said to come by in a studio and there was Beck. They were recording together. Very sweet encounter, but we, we were not friends right after that. It took, uh, well, it took that project to really meet for real. Did you like Beck's music already at that yeah, point? Yeah, very, very much. And as an author also, I mean, you, you always think of Beck... The musician and the, I mean, the artist, but the lyrics and the way he writes, I was able to to be there actually while he was writing and it seemed so um, effortless. He had this little notepad and would wander about and uh, come back with the full song. It seemed so easy. And he said, but you have to write. It's nothing you're making it a big deal, but it's nothing. You just try and write the the worst song ever. That was his advice. That's the first step. Try to write the worst one, and then you'll be fine. Oh, that's a good idea. <laughs> yeah. yeah, because just getting started sometimes, not being intimidated by the blank canvas exactly. is the that's challenge. Exactly. And, and that, it's really thanks to Conan Moccasin that I, I was able to write for the first time because he also said, you have to start, and I don't speak French, so let's go in a place and we went into my country house at the time he was behind his guitar and making up melodies and I was able to put words for the first time because he was so very positive mm. thinking and it, it, it was the first step of uh, rest mm. I love Beck because he does the art pop thing that I really like Yes, slightly disposable silly sometimes nonsense a lot of the time you know it's as if he's 
just plucking words and phrases and ideas out and making a collage. Mm. And maybe it's a bit superficial sometimes, but it's really fun. Yeah. You know, and a bit disposable, like yeah. pop. But then he also does that Dylan thing of making songs that really mean something and that yeah. you can really feel them, you know, and he's got those albums like, well, Mutations was the one that really got under yeah. my skin, first yeah. of all, and then Sea Change, and which is so indebted to Melody Nelson. Yeah, very much. Yeah, I love that style. I love that he can do both those things. But and I think the, that you do that as well, really well on, on Rest. But also working with him was... It seemed like he was always experimenting, mm -hmm. and that's what I love about him, is that he's very unexpected. What he does is unexpected. Of course he does pop songs, and he knows how to do them, but at the same time, he's interested in everything, every sound, every... When I came up with this uh, IRM um, MRI sound, because I had gone through a lot of exams and an accident and stuff like that and I said Could, do you think we can do a piece of music with this MRI sound which was really disturbing and and he was so excited by that he so he was open to anything the French he the more I spoke in French the better it was you know he was not at all saying this is how you should do things and this is how you should sing he made me feel so comfortable also with the singing everything was this positive thinking and positive vibes that's sort of needed when you when you're trying to do something yeah yeah, yeah. there's lots of good stuff on that IRM record and IRM is just french for mri yeah i suppose for him it must have been fun to have someone whose first language was french because then it removes an important part of the creative process from his own field of familiarity. Yes, but he was still exploring American culture and, and for me it was like entering, well it was, entering a foreign country and that culture that was really not mine to have sort of a bit of folk songs. It was a bit of everything, but I had the right to enter because it was him, because he made it mine. But it, for me, it was very American in a way. And because it was recorded in Los Angeles, it, it all made sense. But it was, it, it was very much his culture. But I do understand this thing that you say, that because I was French, it was, the focus was uh, not in the usual place. It just shifted, yes. Yeah, just shifted, exactly. Right, let's go again. What don't you fucking understand? Kick your fucking ass! Let's go again! What the fuck is it with you? I want you off the fucking set, you prick! No! You're a nice guy! The, the fuck are you doing? No! Don't shut me up! No! No! Ah, da 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 like this! No! No! Don't shut me up! Ah, da 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 like this! Fuck's sake, man, you're amateur! Seriously, man, you and me, we're fucking done professionally. Can we talk about films? Mm-hmm. What is it that makes you say yes to a project, a film project? Now I've, I've become much more um, demanding or I have to... It's very instinctive because I don't... I still don't know how to analyse a script and to, you know, to know if something's missing, if plot-wise, you, you know, it's a good script or a bad script. I don't, I don't work that way, so I have to fall in love with a story, with a character and... Now it's a question of time. Mm -hmm. It's time away from my family, so it, it has to mean something. 
I mean, I love doing stupid things too, but it has to mean something. I, I really have to be longing to to enter a part and also to collaborate with people I admire. Mm. So I feel that I, I was so lucky to work with certain directors, people I was fascinated by. It did put the bar very high. Who are um, the ones that spring to mind? Uh, Lars von Trier mm. is really someone that I... He's the only one I did three films with. Yeah. Uh, well, Yvonne also my... I could say husband, but we're, we're not married. But um, we've we've done more than three films now, but that's a bit different. With Lars, it's, each film was completely new. Even if the way of working was similar, he put me in different places where I was not expecting to go. And so... The, the surprise was always so exciting and uh, it's real work. It's not just um, just letting go and... No, it's it feels like real work. Were you a fan of his stuff before you worked with him? Yeah, I the was. The Dogma films and... I was... I loved... Uh, oh, I forgot the name. The Idiots. I loved that film. I loved Dogville. So, yes, I, I, I did... Love his work, but I didn't know what to expect no. when I met him. I, he was weird, and, and uh, I mean weird, he was just uh, original. He didn't seem that interested, so I didn't really know what he was looking for. And I remember stepping out of uh, this first interview uh, and calling my mother and saying, nah, I don't think it'll work out. He just asked me if I had had a depression, if I had... Um, uh, panic attacks and I felt so normal I said no <laughs> so I didn't feel that I was weird enough for him uh -huh. but in the end he called me back and said um, I'd love you to do the film so it was the first step so that was to do the Antichrist, Antichrist first of all. yeah not the Antichrist just Antichrist yeah it's not about the Antichrist <laughs> no no it's a strange mashup of genres that film that's true it's yeah. it's almost a hot i mean it is kind of a horror film there's some mm -hmm. extreme gore but there's there's these psychological elements which are very strong as well yes for me it was the, the whole experience i know that people often ask me if it was hard the the physical part mm. the if that was hard to be naked and the sex scenes and that wasn't really hard compared to the emotional struggle and the that was needed in other scenes of the loss of the child and well when you're at the child's funeral you know and it's this sort of unimaginable yeah pain that was uh, quite hard so all the other stuff was fun and the screaming in the forest and all that when i think about it now it was so exciting to be able to in the same day to scream wildly and then have a sex scene and then an emotional scene. Nuts with a hammer. <laughs> yeah. Everyone likes doing that. It was it was a lot of fun. And then when that shoot ended and I was back to normal, it felt so weird not to be able to scream anymore and uh -huh. just be quiet again. So films are quite useful. <laughs> for me how is Willem Dafoe he's a uh, he's a hero oh, of mine I just think so he's, wonderful I love his stuff so generous and I remember the shoot it was 
a very weird, we were shooting in a weird place. It was a golf course, a hotel on a golf course, completely bleak and awful. An hour away from Cologne in Germany. Uh, so it was a bit tough. And Willem and his wife were just below me in that hotel place. It was... It, there was no reception or anything. It was so isolated. But they would cook in the evening, and it was such a relief to be able to have a lovely meal with him and his wife. It was great. And he introduced me to yoga also. Oh, really? He did it so intensely. It was wonderful. <laughs> um, and then were you prepared for the response when it came out? Did you imagine that people would be shocked? And I thought that it would be much uh, more difficult than what it was in Cannes especially because mm -hmm. I thought I had never been to Cannes with um, a scandalous film or something a little provocative like this this film and I knew that uh, Lars was sort of that kind of a figure so I was expecting booze and you know to be um have quite violent um, explanations and and that wasn't the case people were very respectful I didn't hear any I don't know anything uh, nasty which didn't mean that it was a deception <laughs> but but it was much easier than what I thought okay yeah because do you have any sympathy for people who are upset by films like that can you see it from their point of view sure I mean because I think from, from some people's point of view, they my dad was very conservative, right, yeah. when he was alive. And he couldn't have got his head around a film like Antichrist. He couldn't, even, really? he, he couldn't have even begun to understand why it was made. <laughs> because he would think, what is the point of these boundaries that we have as, as people, as a society, these taboos, they're in place for a reason. And what is the point of shoving away at those boundaries? Because... That'll just become the norm, and then people have to keep shoving away at the boundaries, and then where are we going to be? Mm. Well, you know what I mean? yes, I don't agree, but yeah. Yeah, what's your? What would you say? I love art in that sense because uh, it's important that artists explore taboos. I I find it very useful also to understand them to understand the boundaries. If it's you must be disrespectful. For me, you have to be disrespectful of certain uh, boundaries to um, to be able to understand what what respect is about. You know, uh, I don't know if I'm very clear, but I think I know what you yeah? mean. Yeah, but it's it's important to understand the limit between art and real life, of course, and not to adapt any kind of uh, exploration in art. To, to bring that back to real life. No, of, of course you have to have boundaries in that sense. Right, yeah. Art provides a, a sort of safe space for you to explore mm. these ideas and it shouldn't have a direct impact on the way you behave in real life or whatever. Yeah. But then it's, it's hard to know how But of course people, it does have an influence, yeah. yeah. It's hard to know how people will absorb any piece of art and... You know, and and um, be so inspired that they 
could relate to that and and produce something ter- terrible in real life, of course. Mm. But yeah, yeah. but anyway, about taboos, I think it's you have to talk about things for sure. Mm. Talk, mm-hmm. not not act. Yeah. <laughs> um, and from a practical point of view, melancholia. That I mean, that is a that is a strange film to actually make a film about the end of the world that's so unflinching like that about the sort of banalities of what it would be like if everyone knew the world was going to end in a few weeks yeah what would it really be like what kind of conversations would you actually have it was a hard watch for me i must say because i'm very literal minded you know what i mean yeah if i'm watching something i'll just be i'll be upset by it Mm -mm, before i intellectualize it yeah yeah and did you find yourself getting depressed by... I was very... Not depressed, but I was in a very bad state during that shoot. Because I, I started the film thinking, so I've done Antichrist, I know Lars. I thought I knew what to expect. And then he completely surprised me because we started with the wedding scenes with a lot of people... A much bigger crew than on Antichrist, where we were in that little cabin, just I don't know, five five of us. So suddenly it was a big crew, a lot of uh, figurants, a lot of extras, a lot of actors, and the focus was on Kirsten, not on me. And I, I was, I realized how privileged I had been on Antichrist because he was just there for me. I mean, for Willem too, but it was very focused on me. So that made me very unbalanced at at first. And then gradually my self-confidence went from 10 to zero. And I thought that he wanted to fire me. I thought that he was so unhappy with what I was doing that suddenly I would get a call from the producer. So I went to see one of the producers and said, is he so uh, unhappy with what I'm doing? and uh, she said, no, no, not at all. And then she said, but go, you know, go and see him. So I went to see him and, uh, and he said, no, 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 don't, don't worry. But still, I was very, very insecure. And at the end of the shoot, I went to see the producer that I had talked to. And, and she said, I, I'm really sorry. I couldn't really reassure you because Lars didn't want me to. He wanted, so I understood that he wanted me to be exactly where I was in that very uncomfortable place. Mm. And it served the film, I guess. And you're okay with that sort of thing? I mean, obviously, there are stories about Lars von Trier and Bjork now that have surfaced from Bjork's point of view. She claims that she was uncomfortable with the way he behaved. I was never uncomfortable. Mm. He was never, he was always, uh, I mean, I love this game. And it is a game, and I agreed to play this game from the start. So maybe I have a sort of a masochistic mind, I'm sure. But part of me was really thrilled by the fact that I was his puppet, you know, that he was pulling me in that direction and then in this direction. And even doing takes after takes, what's incredible with him is that you you just explore a scene in every possible way and then you don't know what will end up in the film he decides and for antichrist i got i won the prize uh, in cannes but i thought it was really his work because 
you know, I was just an instrument who went all over the place and trusted him for sure. But he made the character. He he, he made what I got that award for. So you trusted that mm. this was a game. Any weirdness from him was just a way of doing things and not something that was ultimately going to diminish you as a, no. as a person, as an actor. And he asked me to trust him on that. Yeah. He said, because I, I said parts of my body I, I really don't want you to see. And, and he said, really, trust me, I will not make you be embarrassed by yourself. Or, But it was very specific. On Antichrist, he needed me to agree that I would have a body double for this, that, uh, that on this, you know, in this angle... Uh, this is how I would look, and would I agree to that? Once I agreed, it was, you know, we knew what we had to do. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, there is a perversion in that game, but it's more of a moral perversion that I enjoy. You never got a sense, like, when you came off set and went back to your room, you never sort of got the chills and thought, no, 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 I, don't, I shouldn't have done that. That was, I felt... I, I felt um, at once I said but he asked me he said would you agree? that was on Antichrist he said would you agree to to be on camera with a, a porn actor uh, that was going to be the body double of Willem mm-hmm. and he was having an erection and I was to be in that shot not doing not touching him not doing anything but in that same shot and I said no of course I don't care and I went there and then it being with the camera crew and and this porn actor who was very sweet, but suddenly I was in a different film. And I stepped out and I said, no, I, in fact, I can't. You know, that's my limit. So how did that work in Nymphomaniac? Was, was all the sort of pornographic close-ups either doubles or yep. prosthetics? Yes, I had. It was quite comical because the, there were prosthetics everywhere in the studio fake um, vaginas and and really vaginas in in a bad state well mine it was quite disgusting but um, <laughs> but to have guys at six in the morning putting you know strapping you up with that fake thing it was quite comical and so we had fun on that film <laughs> There's one scene I'm thinking of with a couple of guys and they're in the foreground. They're big guys and they've got big old erections that are sort of oh, waving yeah. around and you're sat on the bed behind. Yes. And Were they real erections? Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. Isn't that a strange thing, though, to be in a room? That, isn't there a sort of atmosphere that is charged by real erections? It was very weird, but weird and funny, I have to say. And that scene for me is very, very comical. So the thing that was weird was that I was placed on, you know, close to the bed and with the, those two guys who were actors, porn actors too, but they were, act, they were not just body doubles, they were the actual actors. So we started the scene and once it was getting pornographic... Then I, I was stepping out and a woman came in to, to do the body double. But then it was just, they were going to put my face, you know, it was post-production. But the CG yeah. magic. And the, I can see it when I see the, when I saw the scene. It's, it's very funny because I don't, I don't move in the right way. Right. Okay. <laughs> You're not sort of saying, 
that's like it's reminding me of a children's book now. That's not my bottom. <laughs> but on Antichrist, I was shocked because I saw when I saw the film, I I don't have that body. I mean, down there, and I and I thought I, I should have said something. And so on Nymphomaniac, they they asked me to to agree on the on the body that was to be me. And it's true that. Vagina's very different. Sure. <laughs> it's a whole persona. Absolutely. They're very characterful. <laughs> Wait, this is an advert for Squarespace. Every time I visit your website, I see success. Yes, success. The way that you look at the world makes the world want to say yes. It looks very professional. I love browsing your videos and pics, and I don't want to stop. And I'd like to access your members area and spend in your shop. These are the kinds of comments people will say about your website if you build it with Squarespace. Just visit squarespace.com slash Buxton for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, because you will want to launch, use the offer code BUXTON to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. So put the smile of success on your face with Squarespace. Continue. Hey, welcome back, podcats. That was Charlotte Gainsbourg talking to me there. And I have posted in the description of this podcast a few links to bits and pieces, a music video for a track from uh, Rest... I think it's the title track even. And a interview on a video podcast I thought was quite good called Soul Sisters. Plus links to some of the Serge Gainsbourg music we mentioned, including Histoire de Melody Nelson, which is really a terrific album. Anyway, there's so much to explore in the world of the Gainsbourgs. So many intriguing and odd aspects to Charlotte's story over the years and... Obviously, her dad is quite... I mean, you could spend a long time going down a Serge Gainsbourg rabbit hole on YouTube. But anyway, I'm going to keep it uh, relatively short this week. Got to get home, try and do a bit more writing. But I did want to mention that this Sunday, the 19th, on BBC Two at 9.30, is the first episode of What We Do in the Shadows, the TV version of the excellent film written and directed by Taika Waititi and Jermaine Clement. And I think those two are still involved with the TV show. But of course, one of the stars of the TV version is friend of the podcast, well, two friends of the podcast, Matt Berry and Tash Dimitriou, two-time podcast guest and one of the funniest people around at the moment. Kay Van Novak is also in the show. And he's also brilliant. But anyway, I'm looking forward to seeing that. 
this Sunday, 9.30, on BBC Two, what we do in the shadows. But that's it for this week. Rosie! Dogaris! Come, <laughs> stop gambling. Let's head back. Rosie, come on. Come on, let's go. Come on. I'm running, I'm running. Come on, Rose. Oh, here she comes. Good fly past from the hairy bullet. Thanks very much indeed to Seamus Murphy Mitchell for his invaluable production support on this episode. Thanks to Matt Lamont for gifting us his edit whizbot skills. Thanks to Acast for hosting this and other so many great podcasts. Don't forget to check out the free Adam Buxton app on which you will find links to all sorts of great stuff. Jingles, amazing videos, some of which are exclusive to the app, and bonus audio content, all exclusive to the app. Some whole extra episodes of the podcast, as well as uh, extra bits of chat from people like Johnny Marr and Garth Jennings and James A. Castor. It's all there on the app. Have a look, or don't. We'll stay friends either way. Until next time you choose to pay me and Rosie a visit, I'm begging you, take care. My wife doesn't like the expression, take care. I don't know what her problem is with it. I guess maybe she feels that I'm such a wally that the idea of me telling anyone to take care is a little ridiculous. It's not a bad point. Yesterday, for example... We got a new stove installed in the barn. And uh, I was taught how to use it. It's like a wood burner with a glass panel on the front. And I was learning how to use it. And within one hour, I had burned my hand on my palm. Boy, it's painful. And I did the exact wrong thing, which was uh, put ice on it immediately. Apparently you're not supposed to put ice on it. I googled later on, what are you supposed to do with burns? And the first thing all of the uh, websites said was, whatever you do, don't put ice on the burn. Apparently it causes tissue damage. But I think maybe that's more if you're worried about long-lasting cosmetic damage, you know what I mean? As far as I can tell, it hasn't made too much difference to my little... Uh, Robbie Byrne, David Byrne, uh, which is healing up fine. But yeah, wow, for a couple of hours, I was in great pain. What do you think, Technobird? Technobird is saying, yep, you definitely shouldn't be telling people to take care because you're a Wally. Screw you, Technobird. Take care. I love you. 